Lily, it's coming to the end of the quarter, and you know what that means. It's time for a retro. Oh, I love retros. <laughs> they can be a bit tricky, though. Get it wrong, and it's a bit like Festivus from Seinfeld with the traditional airing of the grievances. Ugh, I've definitely been in a few of those. But we can do better than that, right? You know, what kind of retro should we run? You mean there are different kinds of retros? Um, yeah. And I know that was a rhetorical question as this week we're revisiting our chat with Matt Walton about the four types of retros that he uses. Randy, you saw right through my cunning ploy. But now that we've set this up, let's hand the mic over to Matt. The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast tonight. We're really excited to have you. Uh, first time I met you was actually the, f- the first time I curated a product tank, and you gave a great talk about orchestras and festivals, and I'm sure we'll get to that later. But for now, and for anyone who wasn't there or hasn't watched the talk, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you, and how did you get into product? Thanks, Randy. Really nice to be here tonight. Um, I've been very much looking forward to spending some time in both of your companies. Randy, you said to me recently, um, have you got something to rant about? And uh, <laughs> I, just, I got it back in touch and said, I've got something to rant about. Um, so, yeah, uh, so me, Matt, um, so I've been doing, I guess, kind of product for about 20 years or so. I started um, my career at the BBC where they called everyone a producer, but I found myself basically um, working with um, software developers and designers to build new things, uh, you know, at a time where it was kind of quite hands-on and you were writing bits of HTML yourself and so on. Um, And so spent about 11 years at the BBC, first on the public service side and then uh, later working for the commercial arm. And whilst I was at the commercial arm, I, I got involved with this meetup group called Product Tank, <laughs> it was very early days when it was in a pub and most of the conversation was about like how do you explain to everyone uh, in your organization exactly what a product manager is um, <laughs> you know as a very much a self-help group but I kind of felt you know I'd found my tribe and so so that was when I you know first was termed a product manager and felt that you know finally someone had put a label on what it was that I did and then after I left the BBC I decided to kind of freelance for a bit and work for various different organizations and whilst I was doing that I stumbled into this amazing idea of a thing called FutureLearn so for those of you don't don't know what FutureLearn was we we were born out of the uh, the MOOC movement so MOOCs are massive open online courses and it's when back in 2012 there was um, a lot of uh, American University started dabbling with putting uh, courses online, and so um, the uh, the Open University, um, which is a, an amazing British institution that was born in the 1960s to basically take education to more people than had ever had it 
before through the mediums of TV and the postal service, uh, decided that this MOOC movement was quite an interesting thing that um, maybe they should get in on the act on. So I got brought in in the very kind of early days when um, a guy called Simon Nelson had been hired to be CEO of this startup, and he he was someone that I'd worked with at the BBC. So I got brought in to think about what a vision for the product might be and put together a plan for how I might deliver it. And before I knew it, I was hiring uh, some software engineers, building a prototype, and had committed to launching an MVP in September. Uh, <laughs> and then since then, um, we've I've now grown the the product team. Um, so the organization is about 200 people, but the um, the product team is about 75, including technology design and product management. And uh, we've now delivered courses to over 14 million learners around the world that we've signed up um, over that uh, seven and a half year period. And uh, about 18 months so, so ago, we got 15 million pounds of investment from uh, the Seek Group, who are a bit like an Australian LinkedIn um, and so that basically valued the business at 100 million pounds. So we've sort of basically gone from nothing uh, where we got given a basement by the Open University and, uh, you know, see how you go um, to yeah, partnering with 160 universities from all over the world uh, and delivering uh, education at scale. Sorry, and you keep saying the word we, but that was well, you started this about seven and a half years ago and you've recently uh, made a move, haven't you? Yes. So, um, yeah, so after seven and a half years, um, I decided it's time to take a break uh, and do something new. So um, I'm, yeah, just kind of starting out on that path. So now is a really nice moment to kind of reflect upon that journey uh, of, uh, yeah, I guess, growing it over that kind of period. Because I think, you know, that's some of the stuff that we're going to be touching on tonight is is, is how to do that. Yeah. So yeah. you grew from as you said, from uh, one of the first people in there to uh, quite a sizable organization. What did you learn about culture versus strategy over that point? Because you, you said you were brought in to create a strategy, but you're also hiring some of the init initial team and you grew it. What did you learn about that? So I think there's like the what, what, what happened at the beginning and then what happened next. So I think that very first piece was super important in terms of laying the foundations. So the early work that I did was really around persuading the OU to allow us to set up an organization that worked in a way that was totally alien from how they did. Mm. So, you know, like going back a few years as well, like this sort of idea of working in a very kind of agile, cross-functional way, putting things on Amazon Web Services, all those kind of things were things that were not familiar to the OU at the time. So, and, and I remember the first conversation that I had with um, Martin Bean, who was the vice chancellor of the, the university at the time. And he basically asked me to promise him that I wouldn't write a line of code because they basically <laughs> some of the uh, OU's existing technology. And, um, and, and uh, so the, the first job was really sort of saying, if you want to do something new and disruptive, then, you know, using technology that's nearly a decade old and so on may not be the right way to do it. So, <laughs> So basically, it was about setting out like um, the idea of a product vision, like the kind of principles of creating an autonomous team with a product manager and that team kind of empowered to deliver upon the vision in whatever way they saw fit. Um, but the key thing really was then about um, like I trotted out to Milton Keynes where the OU was based every fortnight. And so we did our sprint review internally and then it was about going out to, to them and essentially bringing them on the journey and showing them 
this different way of how you could work. And I think it also made the, the, the kind of stakeholders there really f- felt bought into the process because they got to kind of feed in in those kind of fortnightly moments, but they got to see it develop and be part of that journey. Um, so that that was that was one of the kind of key things, and I think so. Setting out that kind of, um, I think in the in the the talk that um, that Randy mentioned earlier, I kind of talked about like all good bands have a manifesto. So we kind of had our manifestos like this is this is how we're going to do it. So that was really important early on, and then the first members of that band are really important as well because they kind of set the tone. Um, mm. So those first hires I think or the first people that you bring in to walk, work alongside you and having a kind of shared set of values was really important and then I think it's about how you then consciously create the culture um, and I think we're going to get on to talking about things like retrospectives and so on but like we regularly created that space and that kind of fortnightly moment to reflect on how we were working and at the beginning it was very much about you know agreeing how we wanted to do that and so I guess we made quite big decisions in in some of those kind of conversations but it was about you know regularly making sure that we're consciously doing that and then I think from that point it's then about um there was a I went to um the South by Southwest festival about a year or so in like and it was the point where we'd gone from I guess being a rag bag bunch of freelancers that was doing a project to kind of going how are we going to turn this into a, a sustainable thing and I saw a talk by um, uh, Phil Libin who was the founder and CEO of uh, Evernote and he said something that really kind of resonated with me at the time and I, I guess has kind of been in the back of my mind ever since which is that he, he said my job is not to preserve culture it's to make sure that it evolves in the right way and that's basically mm. kind of how I thought about it since really is it's about you know you've got to keep changing if you're working for a fast moving startup that's growing fast like it's going to yeah. things you do well are never going to like work when you're bigger but doing it in the right way is the kind of trick <laughs> so one of the and one of the tools that you use for developing and evolving that culture in the right way is um is the is the retrospective What's your, like, how do you approach retros? You know, how, how are they structured within the business? So within FutureLearn? So I guess just for a quick bit of context is we worked in a very kind of cross-functional way, um, which, like, you know, obviously many organisations do. Um, but we had um, product teams that were generally about seven people and so on um and then we obviously then we line managed by discipline so i mm-hmm. i was responsible originally for product management and then we had a cto responsible for technology and a uh, creative director responsible for design latterly i did kind of step up and represent the whole organization but you know broadly that was the kind of pattern um so we used retrospectives in a variety of different ways. So I guess when we when we were small, we were one team, and that was the kind of whole organisation having uh, at the end of – we worked in fortnightly sprints, and at the end of that fortnightly sprint, we would uh, run the retrospective. Then as we grew, um, we kept that part of the culture. So each of the kind of teams – so when we split into multiple teams, each of the teams would continue to do their kind of fortnightly retrospectives. But we did mm-hmm. then start – Introduce things like a discipline retrospective that 
happened less regularly, um, but the product management team were, would, would also meet and have their own kind of retrospective. We also had project retrospectives, um, which were more ad hoc. So if we had done something kind of big, we would involve everyone from across the business that was involved in that thing uh, to reflect on that project. Um, and I guess the other kind of thing that we did that was very similar to a retrospective was we, we uh, introduced personal retrospectives. So we we actually used a tool called 15.5 to do it, but essentially it, it meant that everyone at the end of each week, kind of finish the week by thinking about the things that have gone well, um, you know, what they might do differently and what their objectives for next week might be. So I think we had those, you know, those different kinds of moments of reflection um, at those kind of different levels and different cadences. And how, if you've got the kind of, everyone's familiar with or, you know, would be familiar with how you would do a product team retrospective, is it the same sort of format then with the kind of, you know, what I did last week, what I'm planning next week or or month or whatever it is, and then any blockers? Is it that kind of thing? Or did you change it in any way? So with our with the discipline retrospectives, yeah, very similar kind of drill. Um, we actually, um, we used Trello and people could populate the board throughout the week and those kind of things. So yeah, we did we did very similar kinds of things to what you might do within a product team um, retrospective. Um, but the tone was a bit different because it, what was really nice about them is it was when you spend, I guess, most of your time uh, as a product manager with your cross-functional team rather than other product managers, it was alongside like the regular team meetings and so on. It was a way of creating that sense of team and, mm. and I guess, helping you know, reflect on our practices as a product management team, but also kind of um, note the things across the organization that were, you know, where it might be a consistent problem across teams. And and that, I, I guess, mm. for a team, it gave them a moment of um, kind of mutual support. And, you know, often things would come up and uh, an action would come out of it and maybe two of the PMs would go and pair on, like, doing something about the problem. But actually lots of things that also came out might be things that I would take away to the kind of product leadership team uh, because they were bigger than something that maybe the team could fix themselves. Um, and I think the other, like for me as a leader, it gave me, because one of the things that I, you know, as as you kind of grow, um, and one of the things that's special about a retrospective is that it's a safe place. And that means that actually as you grow, probably, you know, the, the chief product officer being in a retrospective is not something that you want to happen. So like for a long time, I, you know, I was not in a team retrospective because it needs to be a safe place, but it gave but the, the team, the, the, the discipline retrospective gave me the opportunity for some of those things that were themes that had been emerging, I guess, within other retrospectives to then, to then be fed back to me. And I, I read something yesterday, actually, which was, um, a, a kind of reflection that like as a leader, you quite often want, when you step into that role, you start to, or there's a danger that you might lose some of the things that actually got you there in the first place. So being able to be empathetic, to have self-awareness, to be transparent and to be able to kind of give gratitude to your team. When you kind mm. of do that thing of becoming a leader, uh, sometimes you stop doing all of those things or because you're <laughs> distant 
And actually, the team retro is a really good way to stop doing that because like, you really do empathize with the problems that your team are going through. Um, and you can do some of that kind of, I guess, servant leader thing of like, yeah, of, yeah. How can I, how can I make this better for all of you? Because I've kind of, you know, heard and understood some of the things that are blocking you or whatever. So, if you had lots of teams uh, all having retrospectives, how would you kind of get the summary of all of that information? Would would it just be kind of fed up when it was necessary through kind of line management channels, or you know, would you sometimes join them, or how how would you do that? So, so generally, it would be through, I guess, a variety of sources. So, through one to ones, um, through the discipline retro that I mentioned. You know, if big things came up in the retro, then the team would would raise that. And I guess it, it depended upon what the problem might be, whether they would bring it to the whole product leadership team, whether they bring it with me or whether it would be an engineering right. challenge. So I think part of the what we always tried to do is basically empower the team to make the changes themselves. And yeah. and I think that's kind of really that's a really key part of it. Um, and that may be that they can do it themselves or it may be that they actually have to kind of go and seek help in some way. But, you know, it, yeah. that's the same thing, really. You said something earlier about uh, retros need to be a safe space for people. I'm curious, if you if it's not a safe space, retros can actually be a bit harmful. I've heard of uh, stories where people get very accusatory at each other and it, it's not a good situation. So how do you run a good retro and what are the, the signs to watch out for that uh, either you've set it up badly or it's going off the rails? Sure. So the key thing, I think, is like we always started our retros by reminding people of the prime directive, Um and, and you know, we didn't necessarily always do that every team retro because teams, you know, get into the flow of doing it. But, you know, quite regularly, like, you know, stepping back and reminding people of the prime directive, which was coined by, uh, I can't remember his name, Norm, someone or other. Um, but essentially basically says, regardless of what we discover, we assume that everyone was doing their best, no matter, you know, with the resources and uh, mm. skills. I'm available essentially. So essentially it's saying basically reminding people to do that. I think facilitation is also quite key. So what we'd we try and do is to get um somebody that wasn't in the team being the kind of facilitator. Mm-hmm. And we, we actually had a, a retro bot on Slack that was about how a way of pairing or finding a, a someone to to facilitate your retrospective. And because every team needed someone to do that, like that it generally worked in terms of like, you know, someone saying, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Um, so that's very helpful. I think spending that kind of first bit of time quietly writing post-its as well in order to make sure that maybe you don't get the same voices dominating and, and then to do the kind of how you group together, similar themes together is also really helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And I think also the key thing is really about arriving at some actions to do about it so like it shouldn't be just a kind of gripe fest (laughs) and I think you always need to make sure that you do always have the what went well what went less well kind of to make sure that you're you're in balance uh there so I think I think all of those things and I think you know making sure that the team it feels like a team and it's about you know how you collectively 
improve like it's i think it's always about like how do you improve it's not about like yeah seeking blame like that's the thing that you just have to keep making sure that people are reminded of i think and for anyone who hasn't seen it, I, I managed to find it while you were while you were talking, Matt. So it's Norm Kurth, and the retrospective prime directive is: regardless of what we discover, we understand and truly believe that everyone did the best job that they could, given what they knew at the time, their skills and abilities, the resources available, and the situation at hand. There you go. There we I, go. I, I, and Randy dulcet yeah, tones. <laughs> Uh, yeah and yeah we had that like often like on on meeting room walls as well so you know again if like something's starting to go off track you know someone might just tap the sign on the wall or whatever (laughs) so it sounds like an awful lot of retros did you ever get retro fatigue and any sort of personalities in the team going, I'm fed up of thinking about what I've done or, you know, analyzing it. I just want to like move forward. So I think the key thing is keep them short and sweet, change up the format. Like you don't just have to do the, you know, the kind of smiley faces or whatever. Like I, I remember, you know, doing things like there was a, like what pulls us up and what brings us down. And it was like a kind of ship kind of thing. And it's, you know, some of the same questions, but you can kind of mix up exactly how you do that just to kind of keep it a bit interesting and that's also where if you're switching around facilitators and so on that can kind of help and you know mm. want to bring a bit more creativity to how that session might go um and and, and so those and the i don't, don't know if i mentioned this when i gave the previous answer but like when we did the discipline retros they were only like once a month so we wouldn't do those as right. regular and project retros would be you know fairly irregular because it would be generally when there was a kind of bigger project that you kind of wanted to look yeah. back on and the format for those do you want me to briefly talk through how we might run a before you do just quickly i've seen examples of uh project retros where they're done right at right after launch or sometimes like six months later when would you hold them <laughs> um it would depend, I think, upon the project. You know, it's a classic, it depends question. And it would also inevitably depend on people's diaries as well. Like, <laughs> um, but I think you'd kind of want to do it soon enough to be able to to make sure it's fresh in people's minds. So whatever you could do really to do it relatively quick. But I think, it, you know, there is that kind of like, when have we actually, when is it done? And generally things are never done. So I think it's about picking the right moment where you think you can, you know, tease out the learnings from it and the way we would generally do it is we would construct some kind of timeline like and that would normally be crowdsourced before the session happened and then the first part of the session might be people can then add their own recollections to it and so what you start with is then a, an agreed set of facts um and another fun thing you can do and i guess this is like you know how do you mix up the retro fatigue um, you can get people to draw a line of like how they felt during parts of the project. Um, and that's quite interesting because like if you've got people drawing lines where, you know, high is I'm feeling really good and low feeling really bad, you get all these wiggly lines. And sometimes everyone's lines will be in exactly the same place. And you'll be like, why was that such an awesome moment? Or what on earth going on there? Why were we all like totally down in the dumps? And sometimes mm. lines will be in totally different places. And again, that's also really interesting. It's so, like, well, why... 
you know, from a design point of view, why were we feeling really upbeat and yet the kind of stakeholders or the engineers are having a totally different kind of pers- perspective of that part of the project. Um, and then that also then allows you to kind of like, if you then get people to do the post-it note thing, um, it allows you to then kind of group the themes chronologically. So it means that you can do that quite quickly and then kind of talk through it in a kind of chronological order. And it's generally a quite a cathartic thing, I think. Um, <laughs> and like, if you can also involve like, you know, we've done it where we try and involve like key members of the member of the leadership team, like particularly if something went particularly well or particularly badly, because generally like people's, perspective of projects might be a little bit kind of distorted depending on who they've heard what from and so on and I think it's a really good way of getting a much more complete picture particularly if you set it out with that kind of blameless kind of premise Um, and I think if you then want to really do something about it you kind of need leadership involved in that conversation uh, in order to you know maybe take on board some of the actions of things that need to change that that is quite a uh, you know sometimes a trick to persuade people to kind of give up the time to do it but I think you know if you if you can do it then often people come away kind of going okay I you know I've got a perspective on that that I would never have done <laughs> in another way um, so uh, and if not then I guess it guess it's like you know how do you kind of share the kind of key takeaways in a way that's quite kind of I guess visceral and real <laughs> mm. to like stories and so on so did you ever find that people would wait until you know that if there was an issue kind of mid sprint or kind of mid project or you know with within a, a discipline that people wouldn't address it outside of the retro that the retro became becomes like the area where all problems or issues are aired or was that not the case I don't think so um I find it I find it interesting because I've certainly been in situations before where something's not gone quite right on a project or you know within a um iteration of something and someone will say to me let's have a retro (laughs) I'm like are we literally just having a retro so that we can talk about this one thing that went wrong (laughs) that just seems really the wrong way round to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I think that's where the cadence actually really helps because if you do it as a regular thing, then it's not, no, people don't go into it like kind of, it's a big deal. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like there are, sometimes that does happen with project ones. Like, you know, if a project went off the rails or whatever, then, you know, people may dread the retro. Um, but if you're with the kind of, if you can do it with a regularity, then it kind yeah, of means yeah. that it's not something that people dread, I don't think. Um, the other thing that's really good about sticking to a rhythm is I think it makes people feel more willing to change because it means that you can try something for a fortnight and then if it doesn't work, then you can change it back again and you've got that kind of moment to kind of do that. Mm. Um, so it's a very good way of like doing a kind of low-risk rollout because you can roll the change back. <laughs> And do you have any rules around the actions that come out of retros? Because sometimes you can end up with a great big long list. Um, That's the main rule. (laughs) (laughs) I think basically a small list of manageable actions is basically exactly like sprint goals. If you've got too many sprint goals, then you're not going to achieve them all and you're going to end up feeling disappointed in yourselves. Um, So I think it's about, yeah, making sure you've got not too many 
and like if they're you know really important they're going to come up again so you know don't worry about it and making sure there's someone's responsibility as well because i think the danger is that you know they can fall between the cracks and you'll end up in the next retro kind of going oh why did nothing happen about this but if Mm. it's someone's initials against it then inevitably like that's going to potentially get more done than other things um although you may find that people are scrabbling around the last day of the sprint because it's like oh no i was going to do that (laughs) that's okay if it's only a couple weeks that's kind of the way sprints are supposed to go but uh I'm curious. So FutureLearn evolved quite a lot over the seven and a half years that you were there. And you said you've been doing the discipline uh, retros for a long, uh, big chunk of that. How did that change over time? And what did you, how did the team evolve? What's something that you might have learned from one of those? So I guess the, the, the first thing is like, as we grew, where we might have changed how we approach those different retros. So like one of the, I guess, the kind of moments of growth was the point where we actually introduced the discipline retro, which was at the point where you had enough product managers for that to, you know, be a thing. And I think for actually there can need to be that kind of feedback loop with me as kind of a team lead as well. Um, so that was one one kind of part of it. Um, we then, I guess, evolved to the point where we ended up in, you know, as we got to a certain scale in that kind of classic quarterly planning cycle. Um, and that planning cycle then also became a kind of nice way that we another cadence where you could make more organizational changes so through the the fortnightly retros that's where you would empower a team to make changes as much as they could um or you know bring things to leadership where you could potentially change things on the fly but certain things might be things that you know would need a change across the whole org um and so that kind of quarterly planning cycle moment was a, a moment where we might introduce things like that and we we actually used so one of the things that uh, emerged also probably through those kind of retro conversations is we we introduced the idea of a fire break sprint which became a natural kind of segue between courses and that then also became the place where we might do more maintain and modernize work from a technology point of view but also became where we you know brought our eyes up to do more planning but also where we might make a change to how we kind of might go about kind of some of the processes and so on. So there was a kind of natural moment to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in terms of some of the things that came out of um, the the discipline retro, like, you know, it's a whole range of things. So changing from we use Pivotal Tracker for a long while, we, we switched to Trello in terms of the kind of main tool and and one team tried it and then, you know, through that kind of feedback loop, you know, kind of other teams and move to it. Um, we decided that product manager pairing was quite a good idea because there's been various things that came up as like this went well this week, like, um, and it kind of made other PMs realise that actually, you know, in the same way that software engineers might spend time pairing on a problem, actually as product managers, that's quite a good thing to do as well. When we went, when we were going for investment. Um, it was, you know, quite a good kind of way of like getting a temperature check of like how the team were feeling. And off the back of that, uh, I think I arranged a sort of separate hopes and fears session as a kind of way of kind of helping the team talk through the things that they were hopeful for and worried about. And actually that made the team feel more in control of like this big unknown of like of a, a potential new investor investing a large amount of money. What would that mean for the organization and so on? 
Did you ever go to a retro where there wasn't any improvement that was needed to be done? Where it was like, we did a great job. <laughs> well done, everyone. Uh, I think those kind of retros do happen. And if they do, that's a really good <laughs> <laughs> like, You know, that's a really important thing, I think. So if it's just, it's a natural moment where the team wants to give themselves a pat on the back. Um, you know, I think it's rare. I think there's always something where people are like, oh, can we do something about this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, that happens. I wouldn't worry about it. I think that's a really good moment for the team to kind of go, you know, collective high five and group hug. Uh, yeah. If that's definitely happening, then I think, you know, they deserve that moment. And did you ever run, um, you know, you kind of mentioned about how you use them so broadly across the business. Um, did you ever try running them as, a leadership team or like on your strategy or anything like that yes uh and i guess that i guess is where some of those reflections that i mentioned earlier around like if you want to kind of make a real kind of step change or really build the understanding about some of the underlying things that you know might need addressing like doing it with with the with the leadership team or um we did do a couple which were just as a leadership team although i think often like it does make sense to do it as a leadership team if it was you as a team doing a thing, um, but I think if it's if it's a kind of wider thing which is a kind of project, then actually involving you know others in the organisation is probably more helpful. Um, but yeah, I, and I think that as a tool, they work within that situation. Um, the other thing that we we did, so um, in general. I think if you're going to make changes to your culture, much like if you're going to change your product, um, that continuous deployment of change is always more sensible because it's lower cost. You're not changing everything all at once. So the context is known. Um, so it's not like in the same way that you have when you deploy a, a big uh, change to your website and you have a load of users going, oh, I can't know. I don't know how this works anymore. I don't know where the thing is. I hate it. Like, the same thing happens if you kind of make lots of changes to how you work. Mm. Um, you need to do more comms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think if you if you can deploy change regularly and in small ways and where you can roll back changes if it doesn't work or you can A-B test it by this team trying it um, and then it's adopted by the rest of the organization, then that's a good thing. There are sometimes in the same way that there come moments with your product where you need the change to be noticed like it needs to be a kind of step change you're going for the kind of 10x thing it's time to do the redesign or you know pick other kind of analogy here um <laughs> uh, sometimes you do need to do that from a kind of culture and process point of view as well um so and the retro can help you in that situation too um so one thing that i did at the point where uh, so we got this 50 million pounds of investment. Um, it was clearly a kind of big thing. It led to quite a lot of change in the organization. And so there was a, a smaller leadership team created. Um, so I stepped up to, rep to represent the whole of product, whereas previously I'd co-led co it um, with technology and design. Um, and that created a moment where the, the uh, you know, very 
well-respected leaders of those areas actually decided now's the time to go and do something different. So it created a, a moment where there was a lot of kind of, I guess, anxiety and worry within the design and technology organizations because, you know, suddenly there's a lot of change and they don't have leaders in those areas or they've got leaders that are leaving. So the thing that I basically decided to do is like, how can we turn this moment of worry and change into a positive moment? How can we kind of harness it? And so what I did then was, um, it sounds a bit BBC, but I did a, a thing that I called the big retro. And essentially it was about mixing up uh, all of the all of the people from the product organization and then doing five one-hour sessions, which was about what are the things that you want to change about how we work that are bigger than your team? Um, what are the things that we do well that you want to preserve? What are the things that um, are really frustrating that we need to change? And what ideas do you have to do that? And they could be ideas that you've seen other organizations do. And it was a really low investment of time because, you know, as has come out through this conversation, everyone is very well drilled on how to do a retrospective. And lots of the things that came out of it were, you know, very familiar. So um, so that was that was kind of reassuring. There were a few new things or there were bits of emphasis that came out that were interesting but it meant that um any any of the changes that we then made the team felt bought into because like yeah. we've had that conversation many of the things that come out through that conversation the many of the ideas that were proposed were things that we then put into action now i could have done that as a leader and it you know it seemed like a kind of hunch and like you know change is being done to us there's a great quote i think about you know, if change is done to you, it's disturbing. But if it's uh, done by you, it's exhilarating. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's nice. I think, I think that was how that was a real moment of like turning it into a real positive story, which is like, well, how do we want to operate as a as a product organization and everyone kind of being part of that journey? Um, mm. And so that was a way of using a retro, which was not about, you know, gradually making improvements. It was about like, you know, stepping back and kind of going, you know, what do we want to preserve and protect and that what is really good about what we do uh, and what do we need to change? And it was really good because it also gave me a kind of reflection that, you know, new leaders coming into the organisation, it was a kind of nice encapsulation of where we were at and, you know, with the, the exec team as well, like being able to have that conversation with some sort of very kind of real stories about, you know, like as a product org, what we felt we did well and what we wanted to improve. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us. We're like way over, <laughs> over <laughs> our timing, but it's been so interesting um, hearing all your stories about retros at FutureLearn um, and some great tips in there for um, lots of people to take away. Thank you again. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. The Product Experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW, that's P A U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. 
If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>